all of us came from different countries and different walks of lives and different households, but we still agreed that this is how we pray. This is what we say. This is how we fast. Like everybody knew these things. We would just have those conversations about, so culturally during this type of thing, time of the year, we do this or that. So when you, when you have those conversations, it actually was more of culture differences around how to practice the religion more or less than it was the religion uh, practiced differently, you know? So I think it just made me see the beauty of connecting people from different parts of the world on the same thing. And I'm like, this is just really powerful. Like you would stand and pray in with people from like 20 different nationalities, but you all pray in the same way. And I'm like, this is, this is so cute, you know? Welcome to Misfits, a podcast where I, Annie Prafke, talk to people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identities. college I attended four years ago is called St. Olaf. It's a small liberal arts college in Minnesota affiliated with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or ELCA. The school prides itself on welcoming people of all faiths, but due to its affiliation with the ELCA and its founding by Lutheran immigrants, there are still aspects of the school and campus life that reflect its Protestant roots. All students are required to take two religion courses, one of which must focus on the Christian Bible. We also have daily chapel time, a period of 20 minutes in between classes where church service is held in our school chapel. It's optional to attend, of course, but it's definitely an aspect of campus life that everyone is aware of, as guest speakers often talk during chapel time, and the chapel is attached to the building that also holds our cafeteria, cafe, and primary entertainment center. Personally, I'm not very strong in my faith anymore, but I was raised in the Presbyterian Church and was heavily immersed in Protestant culture and values growing up in North Dakota. I remember visiting St. Olaf in high school and feeling comforted by the familiarity of the wooden pews, the stained glass, the smiling pastors. Yet at Olaf, as many affectionately call it, I had plenty of friends who were Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, and Christian of varying denominations, as well as plenty of friends who were non-religious. I loved having this diversity in belief which was a big reason my religious views changed throughout my college years. Yet I always found it interesting that so many people of non-Christian faiths were drawn to a school named after a Norwegian saint. Today, I talked to Emil Heimid, who graduated from St. Olaf last year with a degree she created focusing on international youth development. It's one of those cool but strange things you can do at a liberal arts school. Create your own major. Emil is a practicing Muslim from Egypt, who now lives in Maine and works at Bates College, another liberal arts school. In this episode, we talk about being Muslim in Christian-dominated spaces, the experiences of being an international student on an American college campus, and the blurriness of racial and geographic categories for North Africans. Welcome, everyone. I have a very special guest with me today, another fellow Oli. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's another St. Olaf graduate. We have Emil Hamid with us here today. Hi, thank thanks for you. being here, Emma. <laughs> yeah, uh, hi, my name is Emil Hyman. I'm an Oli. Yeah, I graduated this year. Uh, yeah, and I'm excited. 
Yeah, we're so excited to have you. To start out, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe your background? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was born and raised in Egypt. I came the first time to the U.S. in 2013 as an exchange student. It was like a one-year-long exchange program between the U.S. and Egypt, and students go from you know different uh, different countries as well. And I stayed in Idaho for a year. So that's always my fun fact to tell U.S. citizens I lived in Idaho because they'd be like, why did you go in there? I'm like, I have no idea. You don't really control where you are placed for your program. But it was it was my first time to the, coming to the U.S. And I left in 2014, went home, and I didn't think I would be traveling again, to be honest. And I completed my high school in Egypt and just thought I will you know, go to college in Egypt and stay there and, you know, just a normal life. But I had friends who did a program in South Africa called African Leadership Academy. And they were like, I think Emily should apply. So I applied and I got in. So after I completed my high school in Egypt, I went to this two-year program in South Africa. Afterwards, I applied for colleges in the U.S. just, you know, to see if they're going to be something out of this process. I had an admission, like college admission in Egypt. So I was like, if it doesn't work out, I'll go back home. And then I got accepted to St. Olaf and came in 2017, graduated 2021, studied international youth development. It's an individually designed major. I focused on education, sociology, and so on and so forth. And now I'm working in Maine at Bates College as a campus life programming coordinator. So I help with clubs and organizations, their events, and support students in different capacities so they can organize events on campus. That's awesome. So you've done quite a bit of traveling, and it sounds Mm -hmm. like you started pretty young. Was that exchange program you did, was that in high school? Yeah, I was 16 at that time. Yeah, it was was eye-opening for sure, because you come and you expect skyscrapers, and then you land in um, potato land. Right. So it was for sure eye opening. And I, I didn't do it on purpose. Like I didn't, I did, I wasn't the person who I need to travel or I, I want to do this. I was always curious and I applied to the program and I just followed it step by step until I was able to make it to the finalists. So yeah, it was quite an experience for sure. And what did you think of Idaho? Um, I think it was very different than how you would think U.S. would be because as an international, like, you know, an international student or I grew up in Egypt, you only see the U.S. in movies, right? And you all would think all of the states would be like New York. And the reality is all the states majority look like Idaho, uh, just like big lands, you know, nothing, nothing much is going on. It's not always busy. And... This might like this might connect to what we want to talk about today. But when I lived there, I lived with a host family who uh, identified as Christians, especially for uh, the Church of Latter Day Saints. So they were Mormons, and I am a practicing Muslim, alhamdulillah. So you know, it was it was a very interesting experience. You grew up in a specific tradition, and you live with a family who had a very different tradition. And I learned a lot. I'm very grateful for that experience. I loved my host family. I'm still in contact with them until now. It's been what? Almost next year will be 10 years. And I 
I still call them often. They came to my graduation at Olaf. They drove from Idaho to Minnesota. So yeah, so so that's what I thought of Idaho. It was it was a very interesting experience to shape my face and shape how I view the US. Yeah, I think that was interesting when you said I mean, to some degree, I think people from like the larger cities too kind of view the US as all mm-hmm. LA, New York kind of things too, but especially yeah. if you come from outside of the US cuz that's all the movies and things about the US take place in those big cities. Yeah. So, I have a neighbor and when she was in high school, she had a foreign exchange student come to live with her family from Germany and he was placed with a family in North Dakota. And I was talking to him one time and he was said that he wanted to get placed in New York or LA or Chicago or something big. And then when he found out it was North Dakota, he cried because he, <laughs> he just didn't want to go there. Yeah. But he ended up having a good time and they're also close. Yeah, I had no idea where is Idaho on the map. Like I I was so ignorant of like how big the US. And I remember I opened my, what do you call it, like placement letter. So you would know who are you matched with as a host family. And the person who gave me the letters, they were like, oh, you're going to be in based in Idaho and your host family have three kids. I look at Idaho on the map and I see Washington. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so close to Washington, D.C. Little did I know it was Washington State. It had nothing to do with Washington, D.C. And then I opened the letter again and I'm reading carefully. I'm like, it's not three kids, it's five kids. So I went there and they had five babies, literally from age eight months to the oldest was 10 years old. So it was also interesting because I never grew around, like I didn't have little cousins or little siblings. So it was also an experience to live with five kids. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit more about your experience with the family. It sounds like you're still very close. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said the family was Mormon. Mm -hmm. Did you have conversations about faith while you were there? For sure we did. (laughs) Um, They were practicing. So like they would go to church every Sunday. I remember the church would last more than two hours, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And, you know, I, I went with them to church because I wanted to participate in all the activities that they do as a family. So I didn't want to be, and I was young as well. I didn't really have that challenge to authority, right? Like to, to tell someone, no, I don't want to go. Like it was, I was young. Like if my parents said like, let's go somewhere, I would go with them. So I went to church every Sunday. I only skipped like maybe two times over the year. So we had a lot of conversations about faith. And I was asked a lot about like, why are you wearing the headscarf? Or I was the only Muslim in in the city, in the school, in, you know, I did not see another Muslim inside where I live. So yeah, did we have conversations about faith? Absolutely, we did. You had mentioned, uh, you know, when, when you were young, you kind of said you wouldn't challenge authority. So if they asked you to go to church, you'd, you'd just go along with it. Do you think today, if you were in a similar position, that you would still want to go to a church to listen to a sermon? Or is that something that you wouldn't feel as comfortable doing now? Um, that's a great question because at Olaf we were we had those uh community prayers or can't remember what they were called but like they were twenty minutes like chapel time chapel time yeah so chapel time I didn't go you know I didn't feel the need to go I don't mind going to a sermon if I like if if a friend is you know we had the chapel time like our friends would go and give speeches sometimes about interface topics it was not just 
about Lutheran tradition. So I would go in that sense. I would listen to my friends. I would listen to their stories. But like now that I live on my own, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to go to a church and, and listen to a sermon because I miss it. Like, you know, I I don't think I would go as often, but I don't mind it. I feel for sure it was an experience because I've learned so much about my own faith going to church, right? I don't have one specific opinion about it anymore. It's like going or not going, but I learned a lot and I would not change that because I feel if I didn't participate in those conversations, if I didn't understand about Christianity in the way I did, um, I wouldn't be the person I am now uh, in terms of my own practice as well. Some of you may remember that 10 years ago, there was a revolution in Egypt, part of the Arab Spring. Here's a quick recap. In 2010, protesters in Tunisia successfully forced out a president they viewed as corrupt and brought in a new, democratically elected president. Many in Egypt saw this and wondered if it could work in their home country, too. On January 25, 2011, protests erupted in Cairo's Tahrir Square. Grievances included political suppression by then-president Husni Mubarak, who had then been in power for 30 years, as well as police brutality and high unemployment. Protests lasted for 18 days before the president stepped down. Just two years later, Egypt democratically elected Mohamed Morsi, a member of the Islamist group the Muslim Brotherhood, as president. Shortly after taking office, he was also kicked out of power, leading to another conflict that left hundreds dead. In 2014, Egyptians elected current president Abdul Fattah al-Sisi. While he was popular upon election, his presidency has been met with controversy, including claims of human rights violations. Next, Emil talks about her experiences as a teenager during this time and how the socio-political events surrounding her formed her understanding of her Egyptian identity. I, you know, I was very aware. I was 15 at that time. I wouldn't say I was very aware of, like, what is happening, like, how the implications of this, but I, I vividly remember a lot of details. Yeah, did anything stick out to you or was there anything that changed the way you think about the world? So the revolutions lasted for 18 days. And the day 18th, when he gave the speech about the president decided to step down and it was a, it was a, a moment for all of us, right? It made me feel very empowered, right? You'd be like, people can make big change. And I think my generation still holds into the revolution so much that we were so hopeful when this happened that anything is possible. So it changed my view that people can change how politics go or they can say no, even if they don't see an immediate change, for sure it impacts other generation somehow. So it impacted me. I remember I was like, I was 15, but I was like, I want to do good change. Let me start an initiative in my middle school. And we painted like the walls and I like collected money and did fundraising to like make the school look more beautiful. And like, this was the spirit in Egypt at that time. Like everybody wants to create something and do something. So it changed, for sure, changed my my view on what is possible in Egypt and what is possible even elsewhere, because it's all about people. And it, it made me realize sacrifice has to be made. Like 
it still hits me every time, like the 25th of January anniversary every year. You'd be like, these days, people lost their lives. And you just really hope deep down that they didn't lose their life in vain, right? Or you pray their families are, I wouldn't say accept, like, I don't know, but like, it hurts, you know? You you try to connect over the pieces and you'd be like, people lost their life and you try to see, was it worth it, right? And it's a hard question to answer. Every year I'm like, what am I doing for my country? And what this revolution means to me? And I was not an active participant. I would I would say I'm, I was no near by saying I'm an active participant or my parents were. Like my parents were just at home watching TV and watching the news. And, you know, we had moments of like, we understand that things were going in the city because we were in a big city. There was like vivid memories that we had to like form committees out of people in the neighborhood to protect the neighborhood because we didn't have police at that time. So these moments are still, you know, you remember that we went through that, but you still, you were not in the square. You were not in the ground for the revolution while other people were there and they saw their friends pass away and it's still traumatizing until now to to talk about it. I'm I'm just a very proud Egyptian. That's how I that's how I view the revolution. Just made me feel very proud of uh, of the people I come from. And did that sense of leadership and wanting to change the world for the good did that transfer over, or maybe was it part of the reason that you applied for the African Leadership Program in South Africa? It didn't really co- connect because there were time between the revolution happened in 2011. The program I did in South Africa was 2015. But for sure, it carried this feeling with me that um, I was I was an active participant in civic education or what we call like nonprofits world. I would participate in trainings or I would go with nonprofits to do volunteering work and here and there. So that made me... In a way, a leader, right? Like, but I would say a humble leader or a servant leader. I started an initiative back in my home city now, Luxor. So a bit background about me. I grew up in Alexandria, which is a really big city, 8 million people. And then when I was in middle school, I moved to the south of Egypt in Luxor, which had like 1 million people. So for me, it's like a quite a difference. Luxor was not famous for extracurricular activities in general like in Alexandria I would be doing sports I would go to the library I would do this and that while in Luxor it was more you go to school and you don't have other places to to do anything so I was like you know I miss this environment of doing activities and training so I started an initiative for youth development called step by step and I think that piece when I did it when I was applying for African Leadership Academy they viewed as I have an initiative mindset or a leader mindset. So it made sense to go and gain even more skills to continue that mission. So up until now, that's my goal. Like I would love to start something in Egypt, like a youth program. Right. It's it, Sometimes when you're in the moment, not everything connects linearly, but mm-hmm. it all connects to some degree. Like you can always use your experiences and draw from them yeah. to lead you to what you want to do, right? Exactly, exactly. I agree. 
So one topic that you had said you were kind of interested in talking about when we had our initial conversation was that as an international student on St. Olaf, you found that that identity of being an international student was maybe more of a, a bigger deal or like a bigger aspect of identity than you thought it would be. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So coming back to the U.S., I was like, I got it. I'm fine. You know, I know how to make friends. But then you get to your first year and you're like, this is hard. Even though I've made friends in different contexts, it's still hard to start again. Or I didn't have energy. You know, I've gone through three different transitions of the U.S. as an exchange student, South Africa for two years, just being home and making friends and leaving friends and stuff like this. So I was very drained and it was hard. I At Olaf, I was 21 when I got there. So I was older than a lot of my peers. And it just made it harder to connect with anyone. So you had to find this these people who had similar context to you. It was just easier to be friends with international students. Like we would go to what used to be called CME. CME was like the Center for International Multicultural Education, but now it's called Taylor Center. We would all go to see me to like have lunch and you would find someone else and you would talk to randomly and you don't have this barrier of explaining, oh, I'm Egyptian or it's just like everybody came from a different background and it was so easy to connect and you feel at ease just being around international students. So it was a big part of my identity that I didn't even notice until my junior year. When I look at my group of friends, I'm like, oh, all my friends are international students. <laughs> and it wasn't something I did intentionally, you know? And I think a lot of international students do the same thing. They just like connect in a different way with other international students. And sometimes they happen to be speaking Arabic as well or something. So you would connect in that way. Do you feel like you, in that international student context did you look for people from like similar geographic areas to you like other north african and middle eastern people or was it truly like anyone because I, i did notice that the international students were all really close with each other but it seemed to really cross like you know there are people from bolivia and people from france and people from china and it's just like everyone was kind of like one big hub yeah yeah no i agree um i think it happened unintentionally as well right like i would walk and if i see with then it's easier to like just talk to her in Arabic quickly. Like your mind doesn't even interpret that you're talking to someone in Arabic and then maybe you left out a friend from China, right? So I think it was easier to connect with students who spoke Arabic. But I felt like my friend group was from from different countries, but I wouldn't say it was as like, oh, everyone. Like I would say hi to everyone, but who are your close friends? When you actually dig deeper, you'd be like, oh, it, it happened to be three of them speaks Arabic from different countries, you know, not, not necessarily North Africans. It could be from Palestine, from Yemen. But yeah, you're, you're right. I think it just, it happened by nature. And I I learned in the African Leadership Academy because there was an emphasis that you have to be, you know, you have to be inclusive and diversity is one of our values and stuff like this. But I learned that you don't have to suffer through your four years of college trying to make connections with people who sometimes don't understand your background. Like it's just easier to 
spend the month of fasting was with because I don't have to explain to her, hey, I feel tired now because she's doing the same thing with me. Or I don't have to explain much. I'm homesick and it's not just as homesick and your state is two hours by flight. You know, it's different type of homesickness or you don't have to explain the context of you feel responsible for a family member or you feel you can't deal with conversations that are happening or, you know, you're changing in a way and your parents may be, you know, viewing you in a certain way or conversations about religion or this or that. So it was just easier to to talk with international students because you had to explain so much to domestic students for them to just have a glimpse of what are you going through or what's your experiences. I, I'm not saying that they were not understanding. It just, you know, you had sometimes to explain your context. Even going to counseling at Olive, like I had to explain to my counselor why this is hard. You know, if he would suggest, so why don't you speak to your mom about this? I'm like, um, in my culture, it doesn't work this way. <laughs> you know, so it was easier. Had you been in a context prior to coming to Olaf when you were surrounded by people from kind of like all over the place from different mm -hmm. cultures and religious backgrounds? Correct me if I'm wrong, but Alexandria is a pretty diverse city and it's very large, as you said. I know in my hometown of Fargo, there were quite a few students who were refugees and they came from Egypt, but not directly. Like they came yeah. from Sudan or Kenya and then they just grew up in, in Egypt. And so from what they described, it was like pretty diverse. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I would say Cairo is more diverse. Like in Alexandria, like I did not encounter as much diversity in my daily life, to be honest. But in Cairo, I, I would say it was more likely. Like even if I go to the neighborhood where my uncles lived, I would see people who look different, you know, or and it was very acceptable. It was nothing emphasized on, at least in conversations when I grew up. But I would say my context of diversity started really at ALA, at the African Leadership Academy. You you living 24-7 with people from over 40 nationalities. And it's not like you're just meeting them in a conference and you're leaving. You would live with them. Your roommate is from a different country. So So that was, I would say, my first context. Like even coming to the U.S., I was one among a lot like my diversity i had other four exchange students in my school from one from germany brazil and thailand and south korea but that was it you know but majority were u.s citizens next emil and i talk about something that's becoming a theme on this podcast people who don't fit neatly into categories sometimes labels can be helpful the label of trans has helped provide a recognized identity and also a community for folks who don't identify with a gender assigned to them at birth. I also know plenty of people who are proud Blacks, proud Latinas, and proud Native Americans. But labels, of course, also draw lines that don't exist in nature. They box people in. And it can be difficult when you don't quite fit in either side of the lines. This is the way some North Africans feel as people caught between Black, Arab, and White, Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. I'm also curious, so maybe you can draw from your experiences in the African leadership program, as well as I know you were involved with Karibu, which is kind of our, mm -hmm. the organization on campus that celebrated African culture yeah. as well. 
So my boyfriend is Moroccan, so he's also a North African. And he's talked about people often, both in, like in Morocco and Europe and from other places, people forget that like North Africa is like part of Africa. It seems yes. very separate and it's usually, <laughs> it's usually connected more with the Middle East. So he says he even has like cousins who are who like thought that Morocco was in Europe. And then he's talked to Africans as well, <laughs> who like don't realize that Morocco is in, in Africa. Do you experience that as an Egyptian? And did it ever make it hard to connect with other with other African students? That's a, yeah, no, I did. I did. I, I think Egyptians, <laughs> we also don't think that we are Africans, right? And I think it's an intentional conversation that happened, right? Like there was an intentional divide between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Like those terms I was not even aware of until I went to South Africa. You know, we had those conversations. Are North Africans considered African? Is it all because of race? Is it because skin color? Like, what is it, right? And I had family members who'd be like, so you're going to Africa? I'm like, I'm going to South Africa. It's a country in Africa. Like, you know, we are also in Africa, remember? You know, and I don't like, you know, it's just part of how we grew up. I, I don't think I grew up with identifying myself as an African. I identified myself as an Egyptian, right? And I'm not sure if someone who grew up in Kenya would also say I grew up as an African. They would say I grew up as a Kenyan. But when we come together to identify or have this definition, so who's an African in this room? And... Supposedly, all of us should say we are all Africans, right? But then you have this implicit conversation that, but are North Africans really Africans? And I think it's it really boils down to, is it because we're not Black? You know, uh, but you know that in North Africa, there are a lot of Black people as well. But like, it's not like even me saying that is is me justifying who is African, right? Like, it's an implicit bias that we think African is one shade, and it's a danger that happened. And I'm not going to blame everything on colonization because, hey, colonization is done. It's something that we still did not talk about. What is an African? And I would say for sure being in South Africa and being around other cultures, you'd be like, okay, we have a lot of similarities. Does this make us all Africans? Is it, is it about how we treat our elders? Is it about food? Who's an African? Like we had those conversations so long. We had uh, we had those arguments, but it made me realize that there are other aspects of my identity that I never never dig deep into, you know. And geographic location of Egypt is in Africa. Then I should I should have studied more, or my curriculum implicitly did not make me think I'm African. They would always make me think I'm an Arab. We would study about history and there was an emphasis on like this time, but there was not an emphasis on how the African civilizations developed over time. We would just focus on Egyptians and then we would focus on Arab and we would focus on Islam and Christianity, but we would not focus on other dynasties and other civilizations that started in Africa. I was like, why I never knew about the first university in Morocco or, you know, the first thing that happened in, in Tanzania. And I'm like, this is, this is bad.
Yeah. And I think, I mean, Egypt is interesting too, because I think technically isn't a part of Africa and a part of Asia. Yes, we have this. Yeah, we have Sina, which is located in Asia. So we like, so are people there consider themselves Asians? You know, like, what is the definition of an Asian as well? Because here in the US, you, you mentioned the word Asian and all people are thinking is certain countries of Asia, like China, Japan, they don't even think of India as part of, of Asia. Right. So I think it's a question also for people who live in Yemen. Be like, do you consider yourself Asian? Uh, so like having this emphasis on a continent is really misleading the conversation. And it's not it's not giving it the right the right words to describe who's an African, who's an Asian, because this is just it's it's minimizing the definition. We're trying to come up with one definition and it's it's impossible. Right. Ultimately, it's it's constructed and, and borders change and where mm-hmm. countries are placed in their change. Like yeah. sometimes Russia is considered part of Asia, sometimes yeah. it's part of Europe. You know, it, it all gets really jumbled when, yeah. when you try and define it or, or get that in depth. And when you're a country that is kind of in the border between two yeah. continents. Yeah. I'm wondering if that same muddledness transfers over to conversations about race. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, I think from talking to my partner, Hassan, he also says that oftentimes in North Africa, like you're taught that you're Arab and that's kind of like your your race. But in, in the U.S., I feel like the racial categories that we understand, it's like Black, White, mm-hmm. Asian, Hispanic, and mm-hmm. then Native American, right? Yeah. And so I'm wondering if being North African and really being kind of mixed, right, if that makes it harder to participate in conversations about race or if you've ever felt excluded from those conversations because you didn't fit neatly into any particular category. Yeah. I I think there is see and I have to I have to recognize my positionality as an international student, right? I did not grow up with the conversations about race and I'm not minimizing how you as citizens who identify with different races, like they go through different experiences. So I cannot say something about that, right? So in the context of me coming from the outside in the US and quickly people will be like, so what's your race, right? Or if you do this intersectionality uh, wheel thing exercise, you try to like put your race and ethnicity. I'm like, I have no idea. We were just doing this today at work. I'm like, I refuse to answer because I don't think I'm carried away. Like, even if I say, let's say if I say I am, I'm white. Are people going to take me seriously? Because, you know, according to other people, here the definition of white is privilege, right? And the definition of white in Egypt could be just your skin color. It doesn't have anything related to privilege. And on the flight pamphlet things that you you have to like, you have to choose a race when you come to the U.S. And often they put North Africans as white. I'm like, I don't think that this makes sense. So it's not I feel excluded. I just don't like to put an emphasis on my race because I don't know my race. And again, I feel like it's a U.S. conversation. Like it carries a lot of weight here in the U.S. And I understand why. And I'm not minimizing that. But for me personally... I don't know if I fit in a certain race and 
I don't even fit into mixed heritage or mixed race because you if you say mixed race then you know what two races you're mixed from and I don't know so and it's not about taking DNA test I feel like this is part I don't even want to explore because you know it's part of the identity that I'm like why do why do I even pay attention to it Again, I understand why we should talk about it. I understand why it carries a lot of weight in the U.S. But I feel for me personally, if I'm gonna, if it's gonna be answered in a way to be like, hey, this is how people view you, right? Because I'm like, okay, then this is gonna make me feel inferior or superior. Like I don't know why it's gonna, why it's gonna impact me personally. So I feel like those conversations sometimes are just confusing and draining even ethnicity i don't know my ethnicity are we only arabs what does this even mean like what an arab is it a person who speaks arabic or is it a person who comes from an arabic tribe what if i what if i don't know my tribe like you know it's i don't like to emphasize on my race or ethnicity those are two things i don't know and i'm not curious to explore i feel i have another aspect of my identity that i'm proud of or that i like or that I think it makes sense to me, which is my national origin. I know I'm Egyptian and the religion I chose, I know I'm Muslim and there's no emphasis on my religion that you know, you need to know your race. There's, there's no emphasis of like, oh my gosh, if a brown Muslim is better or an Arabic Muslim is better than a black Muslim, there's no such thing. So if my religion doesn't teach me that, then I don't know why I should focus on it. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's something I've heard from other international students as well, is that Americans are so uniquely focused on race and, mm-hmm. and categorizing everyone and yeah. everyone has to be racialized in this way. Yeah. And like you said, like, I understand kind of why, like we have a, a very unique history with just being a, a nation of immigrants and of course our history of slavery and our treatment right. of Native Americans. Right. But at the same time, I also think we can kind of get into this like really pigeonholing. It's like we, yeah. we are so fascinated we have to know what you are and we have to be able to categorize you and when people don't fit in it it kind of like it doesn't make sense to us or people yeah. a lot of people do identify more strongly with their national identity mm-hmm. or with their religious identity and they see that as just so much more important than mm-hmm. whatever race they are and americans like often just that just doesn't compute yeah because <laughs> we're, we're taught from so young like that that's so important and it's something that's a part of who you are it's like yeah. we, we look at you we see your race and we have all of these assumptions about mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. agreed agreed In college, Emma was involved with multiple faith organizations. She was a part of the St. Olaf MSA, or Muslim Student Association. According to Rita Ali, MSA Public Relations Manager from 2018 to 2019, the Muslim Student Association was founded about eight years ago, and on a typical year, it has about 15 to 20 members. According to Ali, the MSA's mission is to represent the needs of Muslim students on campus, spread awareness, and promote harmony. In addition to being on the MSA leadership team, Emma was also involved with the St. Olaf Lutheran Center for Faith, Values, and Community, which encourages interfaith dialogue. Up next, she talks about what those organizations meant to her and why finding a faith community has become much harder as a college staff member at Bates College rather than a student at St. Olaf. I know you are also a part of a lot of different faith organizations on campus. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that and your experiences with them. Yeah. So on campus, I was part of the Muslim Student Association and I 
served as a student representative on the Lutheran Center for Faith and Values, which the mission basically was interfaith. So it was like the Center for Interfaith, even though it was named a Lutheran Center, which doesn't really message out like, hey, we're the interfaith center. Right. I know you had mentioned prior to this conversation that there was a lot of diversity even within the Muslim Student Association, even it being a small organization, you know, a lot of different countries, a lot of different cultures represented. Do you feel like the interactions with other students who had the same faith as you, but maybe had differences in their views or in their practice, did that strengthen and or challenge your faith in any ways? I think it it, it just made me see the beauty in my religion, to be honest, because all of us came from different countries and different walks of lives and different households, but we still agreed that this is how we pray. This is what we say. This is how we fast. Like everybody knew these things. We would just have those conversations about, so culturally during this type of thing, time of the year, we do this or that. So when you, when you have those conversations, it actually was more of culture differences around how to practice the religion more or less than it was the religion uh, practiced differently. You know, so I think it just made me see the beauty of connecting people from different parts of the world on the same thing. And I'm like, this is just really powerful. Like you would stand and pray in with people from like 20 different nationalities, but you all pray in the same way. And I'm like, this is this is so cute, you know? Uh, um, but yeah, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from people who came from different countries and how they would say something or how they would practice something. And it was it was just an ongoing conversation. I would say it just made us more excited to come to those dinners because like you're waiting on who's going to say something different t- today. And so you were also a part of the interfaith organization, as you'd mm-hmm. mentioned. Did you feel like as someone who is religious, you were drawn more to other people who had a faith, regardless of what type of faith it was, if it was Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, more so than people who didn't have faith. And I guess I just ask that because I know often people who are strong in their faith, that's obviously a very big part of their identity. And it's just easier to, I think, sometimes connect with other people who share that belief in a higher power, kind of those values, things like that. No, I I would say no. My first thought is no, because when I look at my close friends, it wasn't necessarily because they had the same faith or even people who had faith in general. I have close friends who don't believe in anything or they chose to be agnostic, or they changed their their way of thinking about religion and faith generally. And I think it does help in conversations, or I felt closer to mentors or people who believe that things happen for a reason, or, you know, like you're not alone, or prayers work, or, you know, like these Im- these implicit parts of being a person of faith in general for sure it made you know it it makes it easier because when you're talking about hardship or you're talking about situation you know someone is of a different faith is with you and he's listening or she's listening the way of comforting you could be tied a little bit to religion or being a person of faith in general but i wouldn't say it was I was closer to people who had faith versus people who didn't. Because I also appreciated just conversations in general 
and the person and their values and where they stand in life, regardless of their faith or what they practiced or if they grew up religious at all. Do you feel like you have a strong faith community now where you are in Maine? Unfortunately, no. I'm saying no because at Olaf, you were a student and you had other fellow students who practiced your religion, so it's easier. Now I'm a staff. Even if you see Muslims around you, they are students. So you like, sometimes you don't want to sound biased towards a student versus the other. So it makes it harder. There is a Muslim population where I am, but I haven't actively tried to connect with them. It sounds like I went to a mosque and be like, please, you know, this I want this to be, you know, my support system. Like, I, I think my support system or my community unfortunately doesn't have a lot of Muslims in, in, in Maine, but I, I have my virtual community, <laughs> you know, like my parents and friends. It's a great question because I was just thinking about how I will be spending the next month here in Maine, which is going to be Ramadan, where I'll be fasting and fasting during that month is all about community. You know, um, it's about your personal personal journey in, in every day and fasting and everything. But this moment when you break your fast and you sit with family or friends or people who, you know, share the same experience with you, it makes it easier and it makes it more enjoyable. And um, I was just reflecting on how I'm, how I'm going to form this community. But I know it's there and I, I think it's just a matter of me reaching out and hopefully it's not going to be an alone Ramadan. It's going to be it's just going to be fine. I'm hoping for that, too. Thank you. Last question for you. You had said that you wanted to, or like your dream is to go back to Egypt to start some sort of youth program, maybe in your home city. What kind of program do you think that you'd start if you could do that? I would wish all the skills I learned to be taught in school. And unfortunately, all the things I've learned that shaped my interpersonal skills and my confidence was not done in school. So if I can dream big... I would actually build like a school system and have it as one model. So maybe can be duplicated later on in all Egypt. But I would start with a year long program where a young person can come and just learn different things, have a community, be given responsibilities, learn about themselves, enhance their interpersonal skills when it comes to like public speaking or teamwork or like just, you know, life skills in general how to do things on your own, how to keep up with your time, like things that are necessary, I think, and we're not taught at school. But more or less, it just having this community of support and have a healthy space to, to emerge as a young person, to grow your confidence and your ability to think you can achieve things like your self-efficacy. I don't know exactly how the program would look like, but that's the outcome I would hope for that program to, to be. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I hope that one day I will see you leading an organization. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. And I hope you have a good rest of your night, Emma. Oh, thank you, Annie. This was this was a perfect Friday night, trust me. Just reflecting and talking, it was beautiful. Thank you for listening to Misfits. Please give the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Please follow us on Twitter at ACXP Misfits and Instagram at ACXP Misfits, where you can also send us a message with ideas for the show or let us know if you or anyone else would like to come on as a guest. We'd love to have you.